Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Chandler Reed. He is with Get Green NOI and we're going to talk about his experience as uh, a a participant or a a ETA. He acquired his business through the ETA method, acquisition entrepreneur, and we're going to uh, we're going to have a good time here. We're going to talk about his journey through that process. Thank you for being on the show today, Chandler. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Ronald. And congratulations on the success of your podcast. I know you're shooting up the charts and uh, that's great to see. And I'm honored to be a guest. Awesome. Awesome. Some of the, the different charts, they do different things. The charts I'm shooting up on are really cool because they're just about like the quality of the show and stuff and not so much. It's just you have to beat everybody else in downloads because a lot of the guys pay a lot of advertising and pay to get eyeballs on theirs which we're trying to grow organically. Uh, one of these days I'll just cave and I'll dump money at it. But I just thought, I really thought we could just like kind of take over the chart organically. So uh, if you're out there listening, please like, subscribe, hit that like button. It's going to help both Chandler message get out there and it's going to help the show a lot. So let's start off with your origin story. Kind of who are you? What's your background? And then we'll get into how did you stumble across this first deal that you've done? Yeah. So like you mentioned, my name is Chandler Reed. I was Born and raised in Tampa, Florida, still here today. It's where I bought my first business. It was located here. Um, I went to school for finance and real estate, uh, which is what I kind of cut my teeth in. My first two jobs right out of school with a multifamily private equity investment firm and then a full service developer here in downtown Tampa. So full stack, just real estate investment, financial modeling. That was kind of my my thing. And then COVID hits. So this is. Yeah. So COVID hit, COVID hit, but uh, all of of a sudden uh, I'm sitting here, I'm working from home. I start hopping on Twitter. I'm writing a lot about what I'm doing in my day job, kind of joining uh, retweet real estate Twitter, as people refer it to. And I'm there for about a year working from home, kind of getting frustrated. Like, Hey, I know I could probably be doing something more than this. So kind of the entrepreneurial inklings were come into mind, but I had no idea what would end up happening, which I'll get into now. So a long story short, I'm scrolling through Twitter one day and Moses Kagan, who is a big real estate Twitter account, had retweeted a tweet from my now business partner, Sam Rosati, who Ronald, I know you know. Sam had a deal here in Tampa. It was pretty hairy. A lot of strategics passed over it. The deal landed in Sam's lap, but Sam didn't want to run the business as it was a turnaround to Sam didn't know anything about multifamily real estate, which is what I had kind of the background and experience in, at least for a few years out of school. And then three, you had to be either willing to move to Tampa, already in Tampa. And I, I checked that box. So long story short, I DM'd him three months later, Sam, myself, and then I brought in uh, my mentor at the time, who I'd still consider my mentor, but he's kind of a multifamily veteran. All three of us closed on the business together three months later. 
And uh, yeah, so I found my first deal through Twitter. Had no idea what ETA was, what SMB stood for, that people bought businesses of this size. And I slowly discovered that this is a very thriving and burgeoning community. It's interesting that a lot of people, they, they, there's so many routes to get to this, right? They learned, learned it through school. Like if you're doing your finance degree, you probably, your school might, may or may not have an ETA program. It started in the Ivies, but it's, when, I was, when I did my master's degree, my MBA was in like 2007 when I graduated, I, I think. <laughs> I don't remember them ever bringing up acquisition mm-hmm. entrepreneur or anything like that. And I have a master's degree in marketing. I took all the business courses. You'd think I'd heard about it. But it just wasn't a topic back then. It was still probably mostly in the Ivies, right? Mm-hmm. That said, um, I didn't know about it either until like I, one of the things, one of the reasons I found out about it is I was in real estate also, single family houses, an investor. I owned a little real estate investment firm. We were doing a little, we were probably one of the bigger ones in town, but we were mm-hmm. doing you know lots and lots of deals and the market kind of dried it up because we were focused on stopping foreclosures and negotiating bank-owned properties. And when the market got hot, those things kind of tailor, tailor off. And I'm thinking, do I really want to do real estate anymore? Am I burned out? Or, you know, there was a kind of a recurring theme on that. So I hired a performance coach to come in and kind of work with me to see if it was me or the business. And uh, one of the things he said is you should be playing a bigger game. So I started looking for a bigger game and, I, you know, I was Googling around, looking for that, stumbled across this. And I think, wait a second, I'm really good at running businesses not as good starting them from scratch and like coming from scratch anymore, maybe because I just like get older and don't have the energy. I don't know, <laughs> but just the idea of stepping in and taking over and making something work as well as the previous owner or better was something that really appealed. So, but you came across that, like you seen this and you're like, okay, what was your initial thought when you seen him tweet something that said, uh, hey, if you're if you live in the area and you got more, I think it said if you had more uh, time than you have money or something. Yeah, like that. more hustle, more hustle than capital. Yeah. So yeah. basically, I saw the tweet, and yeah. I don't know if it was divine intervention or what, but it almost felt like the tweet was made for me because yeah. the, the three qualifications that he was looking for, I checked all those boxes. Yeah. And yeah, so it was you have to have a little bit more hustle than capital because there's going to be a turnaround. We could talk about that too, but largely, long story short, is a primarily seller finance deal and the mm-hmm. uh, capital stack. Had to know multifamily real estate, which I did, or at least well enough to be comfortable doing something like this. And then I was already in Tampa and I had no plans on moving anytime soon. And the operator needed to be based here in Tampa. And yeah, so that's what I was like, hey, I don't know what's going to come out of this, but let me send him a DM. And yeah, the rest is history. So you sent him a DM, he responds. You guys probably jumped on a Zoom or a call. What was the first call like? Did you think, do you think that was still for you? Or do you think that you blew the first call? Most people get on the first call with a seasoned investor. They think they blew the first call when they really yeah. didn't. So. Yeah. Well, the first call actually went like pretty well, in my opinion. Funny enough, Sam and I both are from Tampa. Uh, we had no, no idea who each other were. He was familiar with the firm I was working for at the time, which was kind of, it's like a big high profile development here in Tampa. So he was like, oh, all right. You're working for them. That must mean something. Multifamily real estate. All right. It's starting to add up here. And we both ended up being graduates from the same university, University of Florida. So we kind of hit it off pretty instantly. Started throwing out names like, oh, I know that guy. I know that guy. I know that girl. I know that girl. Um, so it went pretty well. But Sam obviously knew. I mean, he could gather that I didn't really know much about ETA in the process. But his that's what you know he contributed to the partnership. It's rinse, wash, repeat for him. He knows how to do these deals in his sleep. I was there to provide the, you know, the hustle. The boots and on the ground, the, right? The, the uh, boots on the ground. So Sam 
he's been on the show before and he actually mm -hmm. has a program where he, he helps people like do this. So he, he looks for these type of deals where, you know, he can be uh, a, you know, a contributor to it and a partial owner on it, but not the general operator. Mm -hmm. So did you end up going to his, like, I, he, I think he does these retreats, right? Like a two or three day events. And stuff. Yes. Yeah. You're referring to the boot camps. Um, yeah. No. So I didn't go to the boot camp, but obviously Sam teaches the boot camp, So he's got yeah. that playbook and better than his mind. Funny enough, like, I'm now kind of working on him or with mm -hmm. him on kind of scaling the boot camps. I went to the last probably five of them here in Tampa, Florida, recognized that it's an absolute gold mine to the people that come through, saw the people that he's helped buy businesses. So I didn't, I wasn't a direct participant in the boot camps, but I was a beneficiary of the kind of the play knowledge. Of the fuel. Mm -hmm. So he didn't, I was just curious. So I wondered if he, was, if he made you do the boot camp before you guys, like before you closed the business, but you managed to get one closed. Yeah. And uh, so he, so that's good. Now, now talk about the business. It's a green business according to the name. You and I have talked about, about, but tell everybody what the business is, what it does, and kind of the status or the state of it when you got into it. Because I, I kind of know the story, but it, it would benefit everybody to know why he needed somebody that was willing to put in some hard hustle. Of course. Yep. So the business that we bought in its state back then was strictly a uh, basically a light, a commercial lighting contractor with a focus, like 99.9% .9 in multifamily real estate, hence the need to know multifamily real estate. Basically what this company did was go to large apartment complexes. Think, you know, the 40 plus building garden style communities with 600 plus units all the way to some high rises. But basically what they would do is they would go and retrofit all the existing lights that back then, at least when this company was founded in 2014, were non-LED. This was kind of back when LED lights were a little bit nascent. Now, you know, you can get them everywhere. But this company would go into apartment buildings, replace all the lights. The owners would realize a massive energy savings. As using one of my favorite clients' terms, uh, what our biggest value add was we only had, or they only had one neck to choke if the project went wrong. So we were completely turnkey. We sourced all the materials, did all the install. There's government rebates, uh, municipality and utility rebates for doing these kind of green energy projects. So we'd secure that on behalf of our clients. So it was just really a one-stop shop to get kind of your lights efficient. And obviously now, um, you know, LEDs are everywhere. So, but we saw that the business itself had some, some opportunities to improve. So kind of the turnaround story, but also it was a massive turnaround story. And I know the running joke in this business or in this space is you try to not buy yourself a job. And I bought myself 10 jobs at the time. The, the company was doing 900 K in revenue, like trailing 12 months. Mm -hmm. They had some shared services between the seller's new company, which was a smart home installation business that had a recurring revenue piece to it. So that's kind of why the seller was selling it. He had this other faster horse. So he kind of gutted his time, attention, resources. In a lot of instances, some employees and shared services away from the lighting business that we bought to the smart home business. And so what was left was a business that served the big need, like there's going to be lights in apartment buildings forever. <laughs> and just, it, he just found a faster horse. So at the time, the business, when we bought it, it was doing 900 K and trailing 12 revenue, uh, basically was a total lifestyle business. So this guy, he's running all sorts of stuff through it. So it's kind of. A little hairy as far as like some cadbacks and like, Hey, we're not, not really sure what we had here, but in its heyday, the business was doing about 1.5 in EBITDA, six, 7 million bucks top line had about a dozen employees. So we kind of viewed it as, Hey, we have a playbook. This business, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a seller 
basically gutted it to focus on this other one. So we at least have a playbook to probably get back to where that was. Mm-hmm. And then working at, in my previous real estate roles, um, sustainability and ESG have been coming kind of for lack of a better term, the, the hottest girl at the bar in commercial real estate. Everyone mm-hmm. wants a piece of it. And so I'm like, okay, I've seen where the market is trending as far as the green energy and sustainability. We're buying a business that serves those same clients, but we're only doing lights. Let's get this, bring it back to its former glory, and then reposition it to sell some of the kind of in the same bucket types of products to these same clients because we already have the relationship with the clients. They're buying it from someone. Why not us? And so, yeah, so hence the change from the company that we bought was Onyx Energy. We rebranded it to get green NOI and then started tacking in some other projects. So obviously the lights are still our bread and butter as uh, a horrible joke and pun I like using is the lighting vertical keeps the lights on as we're growing these other verticals, which are now EV charging stations, so low flow plumbing fixtures and solar is going to be kind of the fourth leg of the stool, but solar is a, a whole different ball game that I've learned and it's, it's kind of the wild west out there right now. So we're sticking to what we know and slowly growing out these, uh, the LED or the, uh, EV charging and water efficiency stuff right now. So you guys primarily in that still that Tampa, uh, Bay area or. Oh yeah. That, I completely glassed over this. No. So the company was headquartered here in Tampa. That's where the, the seller he's from here. That's where mm-hmm. he built some previous companies. That's where his base. So another really attractive thing I liked about this business was the business and we still do sub out all of our labor. So yes, it will eat into the margins a little bit because obviously we're getting a markup on our labor, but it allows us to work nationwide. So we, for example, just since we've taken over, we've done a project in suburban Seattle. We closed one out earlier this year in Manhattan and pretty much everywhere in between. Although I will say our kind of like core kind of wheelhouse markets are basically states that touch Georgia in the Southeast and of those states, primarily in Florida, right here in our backyard. So like, what's your market scope though? If you just look at, I think you told me apartment complexes with 600 units or above. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that's just, I was just trying to paint a picture of our typical client. I mean, we'll work on apartments as small as probably like, I think the smallest project we've done is probably like 50 units, but it was kind of a nicer product and the fixtures were nicer. So the the ticket was higher, but I think the biggest one we worked on was nine, almost a thousand units just in one single apartment community. We've done portfolios for people before. But yes, primarily in the multifamily sector, we've done some onesie twosie, ones off, one offs for industrial buildings. So we looked at a couple of hotels, but we bought the business and that was servicing multifamily. Our background, me and my business partners were all multifamily. So we're just trying to play okay. uh, in what we know. What's the market like for that? Like if you just look at areas that you currently service, how many, um, apartment complexes are available out there. I mean, is this a uh, thousands or? Oh yeah. I would say a couple hundred thousand, at least on the institutional scale. And that's the thing too. It's more being built. Granted, they do have the, the newer kind of energy efficiency fixtures off the get-go now, but in about the useful life of those is probably of those lights are probably like six, seven years, depending on what the, the type of product you're using. So now we're even getting to the point now in the maturity of this business where we're going in and replacing already LED lights. So yeah, your ROI pop isn't going to be as much, but your community is going to look a lot nicer. And in a lot of cases, that's going to allow you to raise rent or have residents not bug you about it. So it's just a good kind of value add continuing deferred maintenance piece. So what was the process that you guys went through when you did the, like you're brand new to ETH. You don't know 
LOIs. You don't know that. So Sam walk you through most of that. But talk about the first couple calls you had with the seller. And then how did Sam convince the seller you'd be the general manager or to be running it because you'd never done it before? Yeah. So luckily between myself and then my mentor that I alluded to earlier, my mentor knew him and kind of lived down the road with him, from him in Tampa. So kind of same thing. So I think what sold Dave, our seller on it was mm-hmm. if I just came to him myself, he'd be kind of like, what are you talking about? No way. But the fact that I had Sam who knew how to run transactions, knew how to operate small businesses and my other partner, Bert, who knew the multifamily space really well. I think back in years past, Dave, the seller had tried to sell Bert on some products, whether it was the lighting or the, one of the other kind of multifamily vendor businesses he had started in the past. So he got comfortable pretty quick and he saw, I guess I left the lasting impression on him too, that I was going to be able to take on those 10 jobs and kind of write the ship. And most importantly, make sure that he got paid because the, the biggest kind of crux of the deal was if we would have brought it to an SVA lender, as we were talking off offline before this, they would say, thanks, but no thanks. This deal is unfinanceable. So we ended up structuring the deal kind of a 25% of it was a cash down and then 75% of it was a, an earnout. So he had to get sold on me because, you know, if we didn't do well, he wasn't going to get paid back or exactly. For the 25% down, you can, you don't have to call out names. You can say investors or you, was it you or a combination of you and the investors or. Correct. It was a combination of me and the investors. And then I got some sweat equity. Mm-hmm. as well. So I, I put in, so it made sure that we were all had skin in the game and aligned, aligned financially, mm-hmm. but then I was getting the upside for taking on the 10 jobs. Okay. And then the, what kind of, like, what did the first couple of weeks look like? You, sh- you show up, does it have employees you got to win over or like you close this thing? I'm trying to think, well, before you close, how did you, how did you untangle the financials? Do you know you had a good deal? Did you like have a due diligence team look at that and give you analysis or? Yeah. So we did not, as we were talking off offline too, we did not get a quality of earnings on it. It was a little bit given the kind of terms of the deal and the basis of the deal. It was more of like, Hey, I think we have something here. Let's not even worry about it. The demand is there and let's just try to go run it. But it was primarily, so the deal was brokered. Um, so, you know, we had the same, um, the seller was using a broker for it. So we got the most recent financials. We were looking at it. We saw the projects in the pipeline. And so we kind of came to a conclusion that, hey, this deal's got some legs. And then Sam, obviously, with his plethora of knowledge in the industry, and he's a CPA too. So he he can crunch kind of numbers and knows how to underwrite a deal. So I knew how to underwrite real estate, but not small businesses. But some of the kind of properties transitioned over. Yeah, we were talking about this quality earnings report before the show and how people or avoiding them for deals. Now, if a deal like yours where uh, you probably had structure in it to where to minimize your risk is one thing. We were talking, you brought up the subject that we don't think that people using SBA loans should be buying companies without some type of formal quality of earnings or due diligence on the financials. There is a, I don't want to say misnomer or a myth out there that because you're using SBA and a bank that they're going to vet those financials and if they approve it, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And that's a very dangerous myth in the fact, and the reason I told you, I tell you once we got on the air why, they don't care necessarily that it's a good run business because it's a person, they do and they don't. They do to the effect that they need to make sure it has the money to pay the bills. But if it doesn't, 
if you've got enough personal assets, they're going to have you personally guarantee that loan. And if you have other assets in real estate and anything else in the world, they're going to have you pledge that as collateral. So yeah. often a lot of people get into these deals and they maybe they have other businesses or they have real estate and they pledge all this other stuff and they think that the, well, the bank would never approve it if, if it wasn't a good deal. I mean, that's not true. They just had enough collateral that the bank said, well, if this guy can't straighten this out, we'll take all this stuff. So exactly. that's the reason that you have to be really cautious about it. Now, if you go in there and you don't have a bunch of assets and you manage to pull one off, what are they going to take? So maybe mm -hmm. they'll be a little more stringent on it. Maybe they'll take a deeper look at it. But understanding the financials and understanding you've got a, something, there's something there, as you put it, clearly is critical in any situation, right? Usually what you see a little bit of, there's a lot more of. So when you yeah. said the financials are hairy, you get in there, you start running this. Was it as good or as bad as you thought it would be or worse? It was, I think it was a little bit better than we thought it was going to be. I'm talking things like, you know, I was running all sorts of personal expenses through it. And then we kind of got a firm picture of like, okay, this thing's going to spit off this amount of money. We're not going to be running the same types of personal expenses through it. And also, we're also going to be actively growing sales on the sales side. And they had previously just been doing all inbound and getting back to that employee question. There was literally, uh, and called this ultimate key man risk. So at the business in the state only had one employee at the time and mm -hmm. he was a project manager. He was running everything request comes in, he goes on site, does a bid. They sends a bid out, gets accepted, doesn't get accepted. He wasn't doing any sort of follow-up or salesy or anything like that. So it was truly like almost like a, a passive business for this guy. So with all these factors in mind, and also going back to your question on selling him. So. Before we closed on the deal, we all went out to lunch together, me, Bert, and Sam, Dave, the seller, and then Richard, the one employee there. And we kind of, I was doing a sales pitch for him because maybe he didn't want to work. He liked the way everything was kind of comfortable and kind of passive in the end. And we, you know, had plans to grow this business. So we had to make sure that he was okay with the vision. And we assured him that, hey, you're going to be a cornerstone of this business. And we're going to build this thing around you on the operation side. Then we need you along for the ride. Another thing we did too was the seller also had a bonus and sent a, a stay bonus for him. So we made sure that was in kind of all of our agreements. And we also gave him a little bit of a pay bump and instituted a bonus structure as well for him. So the better that we did, the better that more money he made. So it ended up being a, a pretty, despite all the hairiness of it, it ended up being a pretty good win-win for all parties involved. It, did he stay? Yes. Okay. Still here today. And we, we can get into that too, but. Yeah. So he's still here today. We did have to let some people go that we had hired because as I'm sure a lot of small businesses were the, the victims of uh, the kind of interest rate spiked in 2022 and now the kind of higher, higher for longer interest rate season that we're in right now, uh, it negatively impacted our business big time. But like I said, when I told him at the first launch, like, Hey, you're going to be a cornerstone of the cornerstone of this business going forward. And if we're absolute worst case. We know, we already know the sink can survive and kind of default only Richard mode because he'd been doing it for about a year and a half at that point. So worst push comes to shove, it'd be my salary first and then Richard. So you mentioned that, um, you know, that he was going out doing bids and sending them off and either got approved or not approved and there was no real follow-up. Did mm -hmm. you guys take a deep dive in say the last 12 or 18 months worth of those bids or those proposals? and revisit them and like follow up with those? 
Yeah. So a lot of them, and truth be told, you know, a lot of them were stale or they were dead. They had already used another vendor, but I, I use that every single outstanding bid that we had. I was like, all right, if we win this great, it's basically gravy. Uh, we didn't have to do any work for this. The seller had already paid for all the kind of costs to get out there, all that stuff. Mm. But I use it as a good launching point as to develop, start developing relationships with all these clients. Cause then the kind of, especially within multifamily, multifamily is commercial real estate. But it's kind of a different beast at the same time. It's a little bit funkier. Uh, the people that work in it are a little funkier, but I love all of them. They're great people. And they all know each other. Like there's it, a, it, a lot of people don't get that. Like for real estate investors, we have RIAs, Real Estate Investment Associations, yep. and we all meet. The apartment owners have their own apartment owners association, and they all meet and we hang out. And at least once or twice a month, we'll go learn something together, go out to dinner afterwards. Yep. I was in the real estate world for a long time on the residential side. And I end up owning the RIA for a while. They're a local real estate investors association in our town. But the thing is, you, there's a community around that. So that's the reason I was asking, did, you know, one of the ways you could definitely build rapport in that space is just reaching out to everybody and go, hey, I'm new to the owner. How's it going? So yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, we did a bunch of that. So in our world, that's National Apartment Association. And then yep. they have kind of the sub chapter. So Barry Apartment Association. So in those first few weeks, I was going to the any event that they had, I don't care how silly it seemed or how cool it seemed. Yes. I was there. I was getting my face out there, passing out business cards, letting them know, hey, you remember Onyx Energy? We're now Get Green NOI, Soul same great service. We're just bringing some new life back into it. But with those sale bids, I would just use it as it, kind of the point I was getting to was this is a really strictly relationship-driven business. Once you got a client, you got to do everything you can to make sure that they're taken care of. Because not only one, are they going to send you a bunch more business down the road with these institutional people? Like our biggest client, for example, is Graystar, and they manage like 750,000 units. They're like by far in leaps and bounds, the top dog in the space. And they all talk to each other too. Like we've won so many projects because we've done a great job for guy A and he tells girl B, hey, just use Get Green to improve the lighting at one of my communities. They did a great job. It was seamless. I highly recommend you. And we just get inbound emails like that. So. Relationships are everything in this world. A lot of people don't get this either. Lighting is big at uh, on real estate, even in sometimes in residential, depending on where you're at. A security light over a parking area yeah, on a residential thing will make the difference of whether or not your cars get broken into at night in the right yeah. neighborhoods, right? We use them out in the country because I, you know, I, I always live rural. We have mm -hmm. security lights that come on because it's pitch black. There's no light whatsoever. <laughs> if you don't have one going on. I kind of like the pitch black. When we moved out in the country in Oklahoma, I made a, I put a switch on ours. We, we could turn ours off. They don't normally turn off. They're normally dust, dusted on type of thing. But uh, a lot of people don't get that. In an apartment complex, you could actually turn an apartment complex around if it's beef starting to fall into C class. You could turn it around a little bit from just having better lighting outside, having better security. People feel safer going to and from their cars, or less vandalism, mm -hmm. so you got less spray paint on the walls, right? putting a light over their dumpsters. So you know, just different weird things that you would think, wouldn't think that people think they can get away with things when there's no light in a particular area. Yep. A hundred percent. So yeah, that's a big, you know, typically we're going in and re replacing lights, but yeah, we've done a bunch where we're coming in and adding it. Yeah. Um, Cause that's their same investor, same thesis. So I like that. I like the business. So I like the idea, but I, I'm a big fan of putting something in every business. Like how can I make some recurring revenue off of it? Right. Yeah. Like, so how do I, do you guys have a maintenance contract or something you guys can add to it, even if it's a 10 or 20% bump? Yeah. So that is something that I've been, it's been, almost been the bane of my existence since we acquired it. I'm trying to figure it out. So candidly, I think if we had our own in-house labor, we could do something like that, especially here locally. Um, but 
if it's kind of hard for us to guarantee that we're going to maintain your lights, if we just did a retrofit out in Washington, Seattle, we're here in Tampa, right? Uh, you know, there's something, if we can get our subs on board and we can get like, Hey, a predetermined price of like, Hey, every time a light goes out here, you promise us it's only going to be 15 bucks an hour for one of your guys to go out there and fix it. That's something that is certainly on our horizon for us. Another thing that we've explored too, it's not like a truly like in perpetuity recurring revenue, but especially on some of the higher ROI projects where there's no LED lights existing, doing sort of like a shared savings program. But again, then we'd have to front some of that projects on our balance sheet, the upfront cost, which we're just kind of too small to do right now. I get it because I kind of got burned out on the whole thing. I ended up owner financing off all my properties because I didn't mm -hmm. want to deal with a lot of it. <laughs> but in order to maintain just a few dozen properties, we usually would a minimum of three. Uh, so yep. if we needed a handyman, we would go out and find three different handyman services, not even three, three handymen. Some people had two or three people working for them. Because if I called you and I needed something done, I needed it done. And uh, even like lawn care. So a lot of our, our properties, if they were in areas that were kind of lower income, We'd bump the rent up a little bit and we'd like, look, you don't take care of the lawn. You don't take care of the maintenance. We'll come out. We clean your gutters every quarter. We mow the lawn every week. Your rent's a little bit higher, but you know, like, well, I want to do it myself. I was like, okay, then you pay the fine from the city because the fines in Tulsa start off at $500 for not yeah. mowing your lawn. So if your grass gets 12 inches tall and they pick up a stick, you don't know anything until the city sends you a $500 mowing bill, right? Because mm -hmm. they post the door and they don't, the, the renter doesn't tell us. So I got sick of that enough. So it's like, look. In this area, we're going to take care of your lawn. But that we, and the lawn guy was my, one of my relatives, my cousin <laughs> owned a lawn yeah. service, right? So, but if he couldn't show up, I had two more to call. I knew who I could call because that lawn got mowed. Since some time of the year, sometimes like definitely weekly during the spring and the summer. But as soon as it started dying off, somebody went by and drove by the neighborhood and checked that lawn at least out every week. So I think the same thing would have to happen for you. It's not just finding one guy or, or one sub. You have to have two or three that you can call on because something breaks. Those guys expect that you've got a service contract yeah. and expect it to be fixed, you know, yeah. immediately. So in your local market, I don't know how you would solve that, but I, I, I love that idea. I love the idea of how do you get recurring revenue off of every business? There's got to be, if you're a SaaS, like premium support, if you're a, like, you know, what do you guys could offer? Yeah. So I think like what it might end up shaking out, and this is something we probably, and I knew how to do this in a prior work life, but. A lot of times there's some, it's in the same bucket. It's not actually prod, like doing the projects, but there's some like green certifications that you have to continually upload your utility bills to remain compliant and stuff like that. And that's something that fits kind of under our, our umbrella that I think would make a lot of sense. And then the other thing we've been kind of floating around too, but again, we probably have to front some of the project costs in our balance sheet. It was on the EV charging station side doing kind of like, Hey, maybe we'll split the cost with you to get the station installed at your community, and then we split the revenue 50-50 in perpetuity. I know a company that my wife used to work for in Tulsa that had all, uh, they put those in all over the place. I think it was, I think it was called Francis Electronics or something like that, mm -hmm. but uh, they installed charging stations. That's what they did. And their revenue model was they would they pay for the install and the equipment and the landowner would get a portion of the proceeds from the charging and the rental. But I looked at his business model and luckily for, I'm not going to pick on the guy, but luckily for him, he's, his family's got money, it's oil money, because yeah. the, pro, the roadmap to being truly profitable is very long-term. Yes. recover To recoup the cost of putting that equipment there, because the equipment was outrageous. And maybe it still is. You have a licensed electrician install something that can charge you know, all the different vehicles, like mm -hmm. the superchargers and stuff. So, so you're currently installing those too? 
Yes. Yeah. That was uh, the third kind of leg of the swool right now. The second one was the water efficiency stuff, which that was pretty easy. Just replacing toilets and water faucets and shower heads. But yeah, the EV charging stations are, um, they've been picking up steam this year. So there's a company here in California that I'm not supposed to know for sale, but I know because I know one of their employees. I won't call out their name, but they do power management. So they put the, they basically swap out your power meter. Mm-hmm. And then the power meter goes through software that they can see and they can give you like reports and stuff. And the power company can drive by and do the bill, you know, meter reading and stuff like that automatically exactly. because it's, so it's the wireless meters. But mm-hmm. this is a third-party company. They do it for everything from like military installations and all that other stuff to where maybe the entire apartment complex gets one bill. But yeah. you might be able to meter each individual building with these remote meters and say, hey, you got a problem in this building. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll give you a good example of why a business owner wants something like that. We were living in an apartment here in California, and a landlord came by one day, and he's like, hey, can I come into your apartment? Knocking on all the doors, and he knocked on our door and said, hey, can I come in into your apartment? I was like, oh, sure, I don't know why. And he says, I think we've got a, a plumbing leak. Our water bill for the apartment complex is through the roof right now. And I was like, I can tell you why. And he's like, well, I said, uh, uh, it's like, you don't go knock on the door upstairs. See the aluminum foil all over the windows? I said, yeah, you, you do free water here, basically, and they're, they're growing in there. I yeah. just smell it on a hot summer day. I just don't want to beat a rat and call the cops. With, you know, this is before it was legal here. And I was like, they're growing in there, and they're using your free water. And they're, they've got a hydroponic system in there. Same thing with electric. You know, they had grow lights, right? Now, they're paying their own electric bill because yep. we were individually metered on that one. But mm-hmm. if you're in a big place where it's like some, it depends on the unit. Most units, I think, are still, if they do the combined water bill, they still pay your individual, individual yep. electric. But uh, you know, that would be something you could do, too, is like, what other services are there? What else can I monitor that would be, you could alert the, there's all kinds of sensors and wireless things these days. What could you do to alert somebody they have a leak, right? You could do a flow meter on the main pipe going into each one of the units, each one of the buildings, mm-hmm. and be able to tell a, a landlord there's something wrong with this because at 3 a.m. you shouldn't have water flowing consistently every night, at, you know, nonstop. There, you've got to leave yeah. somewhere, right? Exactly. So it, it's certainly something I've got my mind on, and I'm the same way as you. Like, my biggest thing with this was like, all right, once we get the projects back up and going, like, how can we get some recurring piece on this? And it's just a matter of figuring out something that's a win win for a client yeah. tonight. Well, the, the goal and the vision that I always have for companies, how do you get the recurring revenue to cover all the expenses? And yeah. then all your, all your sales are now, they're icing on the cake, yes. right? Your normal, your employee cost, your marketing cost, your, your salary. Your goal is to get all that covered by something that's recurring, right? Mm-hmm. They just, you get every month and you know it's happening. Is the business cyclical? cyclical? Like, are there times in the year it's just hard to get anything done? Yeah. So, I mean, it's the times of the year that our clients are on vacation, yeah, <laughs> so yes. summer, and then this week was impossible. Then we got about a week and a half, two weeks or so in December where, hey, we might get something signed up. And then other than that, it's CN 2024. Yeah. So it's same thing with this podcast business. So you're the only show I have scheduled between now and Christmas because right. it's historically hard to get somebody scheduled during this time of the year. So I pre-record a lot of shows. Yeah. So that's one of the things that uh, we talked about the quality of earnings report. A lot of people look at balance statements and income statements, trailing 12 months. One of the things I want to know from every business is from the accountant to whoever I'm having look at things is, is the business cyclical? What are the cycles, right? What are mm-hmm. the, if you buy a business, a product-based business in January, based off of the last trailing 12 months, 
right? And the owner takes a lot of the cash out of it and doesn't leave you with cash. And you don't know that 75% of that business's income comes between Black Friday and the first of the year. Now, we gonna, how are you going to pay those employees until things, between now and Thanksgiving, yeah. right? So there's just things you people overlook and don't think that almost all businesses um, have some type of cycle. And there's slow points and high points, but understanding when those are and how you manage them would be critical. Yeah. So what is, what is the status now? You guys are uh, growing. You have back to multiple employees. Are you still pulling 10 jobs? What's the timeline? Before I do that, it's been how long since the acquired? When did you acquire it? We acquired it April 30th, 2021. So about really? two years now. Okay. So you've been in a couple of years. Where, what, how far have you made it? How, how many jobs do you have? On, how many hats are you wearing currently? Yes. So I'll just take you back. So 2021, it was just still me and, and Richard, the one employee of that transition. January 2022, uh, we had done, we got in the business, like I just pretty much like it was about, if you annualized it, our kind of sub month, uh, I guess there's a couple sub months in 2021. So the trailing 12, when we bought it was 900K. If you annualize our 2021, it was about 1.1 million bucks. So a little bit of growth, but we were getting stretched and the commercial real estate or the multifamily transaction market was out of COVID and starting to heat back up. Interest rates were basically zero. So people are buying apartments left and right, which for us, especially in the value add apartment buying world, all of our projects are kind of on their docket. When they buy an apartment, they want to fix it up, fix up the lights. They want to put it in the EV stations. They want to do the low flow plumbing projects because they're kind of flush with cash and cash was cheap back then. So 2022 starts, we're ripping. We make our first three hires uh, in 2022. I thought I was a genius. Business is going great. We hired a couple of VAs too. We're really systematizing all of our processes. I'm like, okay, great. So in 2022, we end up doing 3 million bucks top line. Almost have you know a good chunk of that seller note paid off, which by the, the minimum payment. So I can dive into a little bit that. So the earn out I talked about, it was basically... A a minimum of either like a minimum payment or a, a percentage of our gross profit. So the better we did, faster seller got paid back. So it kind of incentivized him to introduce us to all of his old clients, tell us how he used to do stuff, all that stuff. So things are repping. And then fast forward, luckily we had projects signed up past September of 2022, but September 2022, interest rates absolutely uh, gets jacked up. That kind of froze all of the transactions in multifamily, which is a good source of our revenue and why we did so well uh, in 2022. And also for the, for 2023, the budgets were basically slashed because all the dollars that you were planning on improving your community with all of a sudden are now going to pay off your interest expenses, which have like doubled in some cases, seemingly overnight. So 2022 is great. We had made those three hires and we had two VAs. So the total headcount at that time was seven people between our offshore and onshore team. Then flash forward to March, it's like the first or second week of March, 2023, and we had signed 10K of contracts. So we ramped up our overhead thinking we're going to go from 3 million to 6 million. We're just going to double just like that to, oh gosh, we're in trouble here. So unfortunately I had to let go of the three in-office hires that we had made in 2022. We had to let go of one of the VAs, which left us, me. Richard and one of our VAs, who's like a operations manager, coordinator. She helps me a lot with our kind of internal day-to-day -day stuff. And so, yeah, so that was a scary, talking about cyclicality. Yeah, not only, or season, not only just seasons, but we're very cyclical too, as a commercial real estate market does well, we do well and vice versa.
So, so go ahead. the interest rates, was that because commercial loans are all variable, like a variable interest rate, or is that Correct. because- yeah. Or at least in the multifamily world, the kind of the typical structure for this, like on a brand new build, like sexy class A type product, someone's going to come in, buy it with a fixed loan. They're going to, they're a long-term holder. But with the kind of the value add loans, they're all floating. Typically mm. they're shorter term because they're going to be doing a bunch of CapEx improvements to it. And then once it's stabilized after they finish the CapEx and the rents have been jacked up, then they go take firm on it. So all of our so they got hit down. instantly and hard very yeah yeah very hard so it turned off basically overnight so to paint a picture one of our biggest clients i won't name them but they had bought they bought 40 apartments in 2022 and after from september 2022 to where we stand today they one was a six six community portfolio they basically bought in eight apartments going from 40 last year to now basically eight. So a big drop off. So that impacted us very heavily because it basically shut off a good amount, like 50% or about thir a third of our revenue overnight. And then also being to your point, project-based, if we don't have projects getting closed, we're not eating. So we basically had to get to a default alive mode, basically almost to the first iteration of the company that we bought it and button down and get ready for battle. But maybe it was the business guy, obviously, those are the first three or four, including the one VA, four people I've ever hired and having them let them go less than a year later was certainly a roller coaster. I kind of got, I was drinking from a fire hose there, but I think whether, whatever you want to call it, the, the business gods were listening to me and rewarding me for my, my sacrifice. But come April of 2023, after doing 10 K basically in that first quarter, April, we signed up 800K worth of projects. I think everyone had kind of realized like, all right, rates are here to stay higher for longer. We want to make these improvements. We know what our interest expenses are going to be now. Let's just get back to it is. And it's, everything's just going to be more expensive. I thought um, it was going to be shock factor, right? The shock factor yeah. is, oh my God, what are we going to do? And now you got a little extra. It kind of helps you in some sense because now they need to save money. They got to make up either through rent increases or through other methods, cutting their electric bills and other methods, they, they kind of got to make up for the fact that there's more money is going out than it used to go out. So Exactly. Yeah. So once they kind of understood, like everyone was just playing their money super close to their chest. And so once they kind of realized like, okay, this is the business environment that we're operating in. All right, let's start going to spend money again. So coincidentally, that just happened to be April for us, which was good. It helped us kind of steer the ship back, but kind of, the summer has, April is a big bump. Like I said, summer is slow for us because people are, are out of the office. And then in September, things started picking back up again. O October was another gangbusters month. November, December on track to be pretty solid as well. But kind of as we sit today, we have 1.7 million bucks of contracts signed, which a lot of which are still ongoing right now. And in between that time frame, we we're able to pay off our seller note which is good too. So now we're officially debt-free. So we've had some kind of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in 2023, but we're still here kicking. Yeah. And, so cool. So what does it look like now? I mean, I, I get to, you're adding products or the, the market's starting to clean up. What's the vision? Is this a long-term hold? You're going to become a hold co or are you guys growing this for the next three or four years and plan to exit? Or what's the, like the ETA is typically buy it, grow it, sell it. It's what they teach in the college. Like exactly. it's a five-year cycle or a, you know, max a 10-year cycle. Mm -hmm. What is your game plan? 
Yeah. So for me now I've gotten just one, I've learned the business super well. I feel like I have a really good grasp on it now, whereas in the previous kind of uh, first couple months, year, year and a half or so after the business, I felt like we were kind of building the airplane while we're flying it. Now I kind of got a good grip on this. So I'd see the levers that I need to pull. And so now kind of like our go forward, we think everything's stabilized. If anything, it might get better once some distress sellers start selling or rates come back down to a little bit normalcy and people start buying apartments again. So my goal is now for us to basically take myself fully out of it. We're going to go higher, going back to the relationship thing. I think it was not a mistake, but a lesson that we learned was we hired kind of a more inbound sales rep to kind of help me with the projects that we were already getting versus hiring someone that could do both and go get new clients. So one of the first things we're going to do is hire a new kind of vice president level on the sales side that knows all the clients we're trying to get in the door in. And it's just a text call or email away, like the message away from starting to get some deal flow from them. And once we start getting some more projects in the door, it's basically my, my, my goal with the business is we get operations ticked and tied. We grow revenue, we break operations, we fix operations, then we grow revenue again. And that's just kind of a continual cycle. So we're thinking of now we kind of have our vision. We have these three projects, um, trying to add recurring revenue to your point. That's probably going to be a special project that I work on. But as far as like the blockman tackling of doing the projects and our core competencies, as they sit today, I know exactly the people that we need to get in and the levels that we need to hit. And so my goal is to hire people to kind of get myself out of the day-to-day of it and obviously provide guidance, still be the leader of the company, but kind of get that down from at, at some points we're freaking 80 to hundred hour weeks down to, Hey, I'm sitting in on the, the weekly meetings. I'm doing the one-on-one with the key kind of employees and director kind of direct reports and letting them do their thing. Awesome. Awesome. What is the, like, do you mind sharing what your profit margin is on this type of transaction? I mean, you, what is your goal? What is it kind of, what did it start off with and what are you kind of working towards? Yeah. So our goal, we want to hit, uh, our gross margins are about 35%. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then our kind of net margins or net income margin is right around. It can vary depending on how many projects you're doing at one time and where the projects are located because the best thing in the world is like, we get six different clients that all have a project in Atlanta, Georgia or something like that. And then we can kind of get some shared services and logistics really kind of bump that gross margin up, but our fixed costs are kind of what they are. And so the, it's about 15% right now, which okay. I'd like to see it more, but kind of the nature of the business, there's a million other people that are doing the stuff that we do. It's kind of a commoditized business that have kind of compressed those margins down. But, um, in my mind, wh- my goal is to kind of get it back to where it was doing six, 7 million bucks a year in revenue and around kind of like a million bucks, I think is my target in, in EBITDA. And then. Whether if I'm only working five hours a week in it and it's doing a million bucks and I'm just getting that checked every quarter, I'm completely fine with that. If someone comes to me and says, Hey, here's, here's our offer. And it's something that I like, Hey, let's, you know, let's slip out of it. But I don't think we're going to be pursuing any acquisitions or trying to grow anything super, super crazy because I've learned in the past, like I said, I was kind of unfamiliar with DTA and I kind of bought the the hairiest type of business you can buy and kind of the business, the, the worst type, not to use worse because, you know, still make money, but the hardest type of business model you can buy project-based construction. So I'm going to take all my lessons and knowledge from that and probably eventually go and apply it to a business that's a lot easier. You bought project-based construction that without recurring revenue 
And in a very competitive market where you don't have a competitive edge, you don't have a moat, right? Yep. There's nothing. That's one thing I would say. If you could do two things, find out a way to carve out a section of the market that's for you. Like mm -hmm. there's a moat, you do something so much better than anybody else that you're known for X. That's tough. That's like kind of what I look for inside of any business I look for is maybe it's intellectual property. Most of the time, it's just they've carved up a piece of market that they're better at than just anybody else. They made a name for themselves or something. Otherwise, you're always going to be a commodity, right? You're going to be, everything goes to the lowest bidder. Exactly. Yep. So I've, I, I think in my mind, at least, I've taken on one of the toughest ETA routes that you can go down being at one, a turnaround, and then to the construction project-based business. So I've cut my teeth doing that. And then mm -hmm. um, I'll probably look to, um, for something that's a little bit easier, a, a good like equation or a good metric. I know you're talking about your KPIs across your various businesses. One I've been trying to focus on now is I'm kind of looking down the road and seeing like, all right, what's kind of next for me is uh, my return on headache. Yeah, you can make a ton of money, but if you're, you can't sleep at night, you're getting migraines, you know, you're losing... I will venture to suggest you shouldn't use the word easier. I don't think that there, like, there's no such thing as get rich quick. There's no such thing as an easy business. That's there's different ones. Point. And there's ones that, there are ones that are more skilled towards your management style more. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were a natural born salesman mm -hmm. and all you did is you eat and sleep sells, you used to, you cut your teeth selling cut no, cut co knives door to door or rainbow vax. Mm -hmm. Owning this business wouldn't bother you a bit because you live and sleep being the you'd be in this salesman. Salesmen are attracted to you because you know that world. To be honest, that's who I'd recruit. Recruit. That said, not everybody is that right. That's and right. kind of what you need to be if you're going to go into project based construction, man, you better be a rock star salesman. You better be able to sell cut code knives to housewives that you know who whose husband better never find out she spent a couple grand on some knives. So that said, none of them are easy. I actually was working on a book for a long time for the real estate world called Get Rich Quick My Ass. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was just gonna cover all the, you know, the falsehoods that are out there about this program or this program, even ETA. There's this isn't get rich quick either. There's a lot of hard work. Yeah, you own the business, yeah, you'll probably make more money. Be honest, in the first three years, you probably got paid more in your previous job than you paid yourself in the first two years of this business. I'm reading it the I've heard it about six or seven times. I just evaluated a business that said they're using it. Uh, profit first. Have you read the book? I've heard of it though. Yeah. It's a different model where you basically pay the profit and then you pay your income before you do anything else. And it makes you get really scrappy on the rest of the stuff. I've heard it four or five different times and I've heard people really doing successful with it. One of the companies I evaluated recently, they're running it and I don't think they would have survived if they weren't. I think they had given up a long time ago, uh, but they just engineered it to where that's, it works for them. The um, other one, if, if, you, if you got two books uh, to read over the holidays when you're slow, the other one is Who Not How um, by Dan Sullivan. Yeah, I've just added that one to the list too. Cool. Two books for you. I look forward to hearing how the story uh, progresses. Is there anything, uh, shout out you, is there anything our audience can do for you? Like they own a, I don't know, like, hey, if you know somebody owns an apartment complex, come give me a call. Or what? How do people reach you? What do you want them to reach you for? Uh, yeah. This is your chance to pitch something, guy. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. So on the Get Green NOI side, yes. If you know a commercial real estate owner, I would say on the industrial side, anything over 5,000 square feet on the apartment side, anything over probably a hundred units or anyone that works for a big institutional property or community manager, feel free to send them my way. Just give me the contact info. I will get them on the phone as soon as I can and try to help them out with any one of our couple of projects. And then anyone who's curious about ETA doing what I did, although I'd recommend probably 
buying a different business than what I bought. But hey, there's a right answer for everyone. But go check out my Twitter. My Twitter is at Chandler Reed SMB. I talk basically all things small business, ETA, what I'm learning, what I've learned about ETA to date, and any new cool stuff on that horizon. And then I know we talked about Sam's kind of boot camp earlier, but I'm helping him kind of spread the good word on that and try to avoid some of the pitfalls that we're seeing on Twitter that to me, I thought was common knowledge, but apparently it's not. Um, I promise you, if you go through the boot camp, you're going to be well prepared more than I would say 99% of the people in this space that aren't going through the boot camp. Yeah, um, I haven't been to his boot camp yet, but I've uh, followed him on social media. I've interviewed him. I really think it's a, I recommend it. If, if somebody's out there thinking about doing it, I don't know when the next one's coming up, but, uh, Follow you on Twitter. I'm sure you'll post about it. Follow Sam on, on Twitter. He, he talks about it when he has them going on. And uh, definitely, there's two ways to do this. You can buy, you know, $100 worth of books and try to do it on your own. And it's very painful. Or you can go out and team up with people in the community, find a mentor, find one of the guys teaching it, and work with people in that community and get things done. The latter is you chose the easier path of those two paths, right? Yeah. If you didn't have Sam to lean back on and you didn't have uh, your business partner to lean back on that have been in business for a long time, you, this, this last rough spell could have been really disastrous, right? It's the confidence somebody has that have been through it a couple of different times. That like, hey, this is going to be okay. Let's just keep chugging along, right? If you're going through hell, keep going. They may not notice you're there. Like, exactly. it, it takes somebody that's been through those, those hard times to go, look, we're just going to keep chugging along. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. This too shall pass. So um, thank you for being here today. I want people to reach out to you and connect with you. And uh, we'll call that a show. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ronald. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Awesome. Hang out for just a second. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now